0: International Media Ministries presents dramatic scriptwriting with award winning screenwriter and director Bart Gabigan. Lesson 11 Film Language and Conflict. Uh, uh, let me talk about it for a minute the nature of what you're dealing with. Um, of what you're dealing with in different art forms. So, film is visual. Film is very good at uh, dealing with the exterior, dealing with the world. It, uh, y- you can have spectacular locations. You can have great width in film, just visually. Um, it is to do with the, making the interior exterior, but, but uh, it's not as good as the novel at doing that. In other words, the novel can do that very easily. It just tells you what's going on. I mean, in the novel, you can have literally a stream of consciousness. Um, whereas in film, a uh, stream of consciousness is not what works best in film at all. Um, as a structure. In theatre, the spoken word, dialogue, uh, relationships between people, intimate relationships in the sense of interpersonal relationships, More and more, theatre is influenced by film, so more and more when you go to theatre, you're now getting spectacular effects, or go to musicals, you get spectacular effects, and you you actually get scene changes that are very filmic nowadays. So it's actually being pushed by film to be more uh, visual. But its natural ambience is is dialogue, is is relationship, is is watching people talk to each other. So in theatre... the ratio of impact would be 80 or 90% is through the actual dialogue, it's through the spoken word. Whereas in film, the impact through the spoken word might be 10%, might be 15%. It's through the subtext that most of the stuff's going on. It's through the visual, it's through the subtext. It's not through what's actually been said, it's through what's actually going on. There's a language that is called interpersonal film language, or it's a language whereby. You take the audience inside the arc of the camera, so you put your camera five degrees off my face, and the result of that is the audience actually become a participant. They actually can read my mind. They can see what I'm thinking. They can, they can see what I, how I'm every little bit of how I'm thinking. Um, and this language shows because it shows you what people are thinking and how they're. Uh, even when, as they're speaking, it shows you, in a sense, the gaps between their speech. is an incredibly powerful language because it takes the audience right inside the arc. Now the rule is you mustn't disturb that language, and other words, once you're in there, you can't have an over-the-shoulder shot. Or you can that breaks the language. You see know what I mean? There are rules. There are, I won't go into the rules for this language. Um, they're not known, so. In my naivety, coming from this kind of background, when I was working with BBC cameramen and so on, I'd say, oh, you know, we'd be having three-camera interviews and say, and I'd say, oh, set it up on the line, you know, set, set me up a, set up the interview on the line. And then I'd look in the monitors or look, and, and they'd have set the camera maybe 20, 30, 40 degrees off the line, and I suddenly realised. They don't think like you, and I, and I was, the only possible way I could do an interview was at least someone must be on the line, and I was, to be more than five degrees off the line means the audience are no longer a participant. You know, they're an observer. They're not actually inside the interview, and all the power is from the fact that you don't let them observe. They're in there, boom, yeah. and you don't disturb it. So, even the way you shoot in film can, uh, can underlines the power of the visual underlines the fact that the, the spoken word is, is not the power here. It's actually seeing uh, people's thoughts, the subtext, what there's, what's really going on. And seeing their actions and choices and, uh, and so on as they go through life on this journey. And it raises one of the issues about dialogue, which is that people in films in particular, in, in the visual media, should not be talking to each other. If they're just talking to each other, you're in deep trouble, <laughs> OK? What they're doing is challenging each other, quarrelling, arguing, or addressing each other's souls. And was the, don't get me wrong. They can be talking, but the whole form of it is drama. If they're just talking, you have no drama. If, if that's all that's going on, this isn't writing. This is an essay, OK? I want to start this morning with a, a word that is the lifeblood of drama. And this word is conflict. Without conflict, there is no drama, okay? Without conflict, you just have information um, and exposition. Without conflict, you have thesis. <laughs> you have a, an essay, OK? <laughs> yeah. Drama, good definition of drama would be drama equals exposition Plus conflict. This is a very limited definition because it leaves out character. But uh, this is, there's a certain truth in this, that drama equals exposition plus conflict, okay? Ex- exposition is a, a word used in story. Um, exposition is when every, everyone anyone is basically telling you information. Uh, In theatre, there used to be a tradition of table dusting. Two maids would come on and tell you basically the pot of what was going on as they were dusting the, you know, table dusting. Table dusting is not drama. It's the opposite to drama, Okay. Um, The news uh, deals in exposition a lot. So what the news will do is undercut drama without knowing it. Very poor filmmaking often in the news. In other words, what will happen in the news is they'll show you some pictures of Sudan and put a voiceover on that neutralizes the picture. Because once you put voiceover on something, uh, the voiceover always tells you how to see something. Do you, un- do you understand? In, in, a, in, a, in a, it's, um, <laughs> If you really want power, if you want to change people, if you want to have pictures affect them or something affect them, you have to take the risk of taking voiceover off. Because voiceover is like a veil, is like a layer between you and your audience. And the news uses it all the time as a, as a cheap, It's A, it's cheap, and B, it's like a convention. It, they, they, it's an editorial control where you are told how to view these pictures. Okay? The pictures themselves often actually, when you actually look at them, don't bear any resemblance to what you're being told. What you have to know about voiceover is that voiceover alienates your audience. It's called a superior technique. other you words, know, it's like flashback. It actually distances your audience. And there are rules about voiceover, uh, and because it distances your audience, one of the places you would never use it is right down the front of a film, if you can help it, unless it's a genre piece where the audience actually understand that, you know, Philip Marlowe is going to have a voiceover. It's, it's part of that whole Raymond Chandler sort of approach to writing and to film, and it's become a convention. Uh, But what it does is the audience, you see, what actually voiceover does, and and you have to understand technically what it does, it says to your audience, you don't have to look too closely at this picture because I'm telling you what you need to know. Okay? That's exactly what it does. Okay? And so that's a distancing technique. That actually says you don't have to be fully engaged here. If you're going to engage anywhere, listen to what I'm saying. You don't have to really look closely at the picture. It's exactly the same. Another superior technique is called montage, okay, montage, um, which is used a lot. It like, say, a music montage. Now, again, montage is a distancing technique for precisely the same reason. Because when you use a music montage, and uh, there's no problem with using them, don't get me wrong, uh, what happens is you're saying to your audience, you don't have to look at each picture here You just have to get the general idea, okay? So you're actually saying to them, you don't have to focus on every single thing going on in this film. And so you distance them. So a rule about montages, which is nearly always broken by bad filmmakers, okay, is you never would have montage down the beginning of a film. Where you would use montage is when the audience are already in the film, bonded in, they're not going to get out. And it's quite safe to use montage. So exposition. Um, Exposition, in a sense, decides how you handle exposition. Decides, in some ways, it's one of the tests for whether you're a a good or a great writer. Bad writers fear exposition. It terrorizes them. They think, oh my goodness, how am I going to deal with this? I've got to convey to the audience all this information. And, And there can be two reasons why you need to convey exposition okay one reason is to actually set up to establish the drama obviously down the front of the film you are trying to tell people the world of the story to set up the story and they need information and hopefully you can give them that information visually but some of it you'll only be able to do through language through dialogue and this terrifies the life out of lots of writers Now the other reason you might want to give them exposition is for a reason Hitchcock talked about, which we'll look at in a minute, which is uh, in order to establish dread in the audience, in order to establish anticipation, okay, in order to establish suspense, you have to provide information. Do you understand? In, In other words, the, the, the audience need to know, for example, that someone is on the run that the police is after him in order to actually have them afraid every time a policeman appears on the periphery of the film. In order to, uh, for suspense to work, you have to give information, OK? And we'll see that this sets up an, a very interesting tension between the rules about information. The rule about exposition is, is that you do it gradually throughout the film. You, you're, you're very, you're like a miser, okay? You, you, you let it go grudgingly, piece by piece. Do you know this word miser? It means someone who's very mean with money. He, he hangs on to his money, okay? And, and, uh, and so you as a writer are very mean about the way you dole out or you give away your exposition. You do it gradually throughout the film and you save the best exposition till the end. It's like the wedding feast of Cana, you know, the best wine you leave to the end, the, the worst secret, the thing that's going to blow things up, you know, you, you, you hold that back, you withhold information. You only give information away on a need-to-know basis. If the audience need to know it, they need to know it, so you have to tell them, but otherwise you won't tell them. That's how, that's how your basic approach to exposition is. Except, except, in the situation of suspense. the so suspense is the opposite. They need information to experience suspense. So uh, you have to balance these tensions between being miserly about your exposition with being generous about your exposition if it will set up suspense, because suspense is an incredibly powerful tool in film, and it will take the audience right through big chunks of your film, no problem at all, because they're in suspense. They're anticipating, uh, they're hoping, but they're fearing, they're dreading, they're foreboding, and so on. Okay. So exposition often reveals whether you're a good writer or not. Good writers love exposition. They just say, it's my meat and drink. Let's do it, you know, because all we're going to do is dramatize it, okay? Drama equals exposition plus conflict. Um, Let me tell you a little story about Gabriel he has a friend uh, a girl called Eloise and um, he often visits Eloise and we know their parents her parents very well and one day we went when he was about 20 months old we went to see Eloise with him and to see Athy his mother and so on. and she put on a video called Peter Rabbit okay you know we all know this story do we of Peter Rabbit who who goes to the garden to steal the carrots and whatever and ends up trapped. And they put it on. And at the beginning of this video, there's a slight recreation of the woman who wrote the story, going out and painting and sketching and so on. And the children were absolutely bored during all this, and, you know, sort of of bored. And then came the cartoon, and as soon as the cartoon began, they got interested. And, and this is very important to understand. Um, cartoon has one great gift. Okay, it's, it's got a free ride in one area, which is that cartoon can create empathy naturally. It, it avoids the normal struggle you have to do to create empathy. And in other words, cartoon, if you use it right, can actually bypass all the problems and can create direct empathy with the audience. Why it can do this, I haven't worked out, to be honest. But I, I know it's true, and I've seen it again and again. And sure enough, as soon as the cartoon bit came on, they were interested, and, and they watched for a bit. But gradually, uh, their interests start to wane. And you know their interest is waning because they're spilling orange juice on you and whatever it is. And Athie kept saying, the mother kept saying, but don't worry, don't worry. Uh, Mr. McGregor will be coming soon. <laughs> don't worry. Mr. McGregor will be on in a minute. And you think... Yeah, okay. And sure enough, there comes to the point where Mr. McGregor is chasing Peter Rabbit. We have this trauma where he, he discovers him and he, the gar- Mr. McGregor is the gardener and he chases him. And boom! The children were right there. And from then on, they were right there in the film. Okay? As soon as the, the conflict a- appeared in the film, they were with it and they were right there. Now, of course, by the time they're two and a half or three, that conflict is so terrifying to them that they don't want to watch Peter Rabbit anymore. Okay? They've moved to another state. But um, conflict and your audience um, is absolutely crucial. You have to have conflict on three levels. The Greeks understood these levels. Okay? Um, myth has always understood these levels. And the levels are the inner, inner conflict... Uh, conflict at the level of family was, sorry, was how the Greeks put it, the next level, which is really this interpersonal conflict. In other words, conflict between family members, between friends, between your immediate circle, people who have a relationship with you. That's sort of, you know, was intimate conflict, you could say. And then conflict on the broad level, which is with the world, with, with the environment, uh, with the forces of law, with with all the relationships that are beyond that circle, plus all the other factors that come into life, including environment, including traffic, whatever it is. Okay. And to do great drama, you must be able to uh, push your film on all three levels. And if possible, at the same time, if you can do it at the same time, then you are just singing. Singing. And, of course, what this means is though the inner area of conflict is naturally suited to the novel, you must have it in film. In other words, inner conflict has a a huge place in film, and just because you can most easily deal with it in a novel doesn't necessarily mean it's not going to be in film. Uh, Interpersonal relationships are the meat and drink of theatre. They are also the meat and drink of soap opera. Okay. Soap opera lives and dies by this stuff. So in a soap opera, for example, the great goal is to get everyone into interpersonal relationships and conflicts. So if a new character comes into a soap opera, within a week he's having an affair with someone in the soap opera. You're in... You, you, do you understand? Or something's going on, whereby it might be the milkman, it might be the tax inspector, but he's pulled into the ambience of interpersonal relationship. Okay, so this is the meat and drink of soap opera, and that's why soap opera is full of talking heads basically it starts to move in this interpersonal language without even knowing it It doesn't even know the rules it's moving in and so it's usually done terribly now lots of films like action adventure just deals with conflict on one level the heroes of action adventure are not renowned for for their inner struggles of conscience you know whether it's James Bond or Harrison Ford or whatever it is these people do not spend their life wondering if I have morally done the right thing okay they're too busy blowing people up or acting or okay and nor do they are they renowned for their deep interpersonal relationships and conflicts okay Uh, uh, and so as a result in this kind of genre what you have is, is conflict all on one level, which is on the great outer level. okay. And people who make these films understand that. So they are denied complexity because there's not conflict on all three levels. So they have to major in complication and obstacles. And so the bo- body count is ferocious. The special effects are ferocious. You know. This, the, the exotic locations have, are a necessary thing. And all that is to actually distract from the fact that these actually are very shallow vehicles. I'm not saying they're not enjoyable or whatever. I'm just saying that at the level of drama, these is, you're down in among the pygmies, OK? Because you're dealing all in one level, OK? Now, I do want to say one thing here, which uh, you should be aware of, which is that uh, When you're writing, when you're dealing with conflict, since conflict is at the core of drama, you are walking a very narrow moral line, okay? And you have to be aware of this. So, what we are talking about here is violence. At the very least, we're usually not talking about physical violence, but we're talking about emotional violence. In your language, in the drama, and in the feelings that are going on. In the subtext, there's great violence. So in ordinary people, there's huge violence, Okay. In Kramer versus Kramer, there's huge violence, emotionally. And you can't be afraid of this. In other words, if you want to tell stories, you can't be afraid of violence. You can't be afraid of the nature of storytelling. Otherwise, you must not tell any stories, because you're going to tell them very badly and no one's going to be interested. So what you have to do is to actually be aware of the narrow line you walk and to be responsible in that. One of the things that interests me about the say, of ordinary people was the way in the film they went through it and cleaned it up. It was far more, uh, at the level of language, far more violent, uh, far more vulgar. And obviously, either the director, Redford, or um, the writer, uh, at some point went through the script and said, we don't need this, and often had to reach for a witty way of replacing it. So um, there's a classic moment when, uh, do you remember when the guys are driving to school and she's walking along the road? Well, in the, f- in the script, they actually lean out and say a number of obscenities to her, the first script. <coughs> Now they lean out and says, nice knees, Pratt. You know, it's a sort of, far more witty. It does exactly the same thing, but it actually is, is witty. So the price you pay for actually removing the vulgarities, you have to have some wit. You have to actually you have to work a bit harder. So they did work a bit harder. Um, and in a sense, I would say that's like part of the line you walk. And I'm not saying that you, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you Go around and sort of put disinfectant all over your script. I'm not saying that at all I'm actually saying that be aware that you deal in violence when you write you deal in conflict Okay, and do that responsibly aware of what you're doing aware of the of the feelings and the responses you are you're dealing with in your audience so conflict is the is the oxygen of your film or your story or your novel. And if it's a film, say, uh, to give an example, this is two hours long or 110 minutes long, say, how are you going to sustain conflict for two hours? And conflict is always going to be present, more or less, throughout the film to, at some level or other. Now, obviously, variety, variety of conflict, variety of intensity, is going to be a feature in this. The audience would have a huge problem if you try and sustain the same note of intensity right through the film. Okay. On the other hand, uh, you're going to have to avoid repetition. Repetition is a great no no of story structure. What this means is if you you are having either the same kinds of conflicts, in other words, the same nature of conflict in Act Two that you were having in Act One, something is wrong. If you're having the same intensity of conflict in Act Two, as in Act One. It doesn't mean necessarily something's wrong, but you have to look at it very carefully, because what you want to avoid is the feeling that we're not progressing here, that we're on a level plane just going along. So we're in the middle of our cancers or somewhere, and we're just going right along, and nothing is going up or down. Another problem you have is that human beings cannot sustain certain degrees of intensity very long. And part of the reason for this is that as Patricia again was saying this morning in a a different way when she was saying don't just look at the fruit of something. (laughs) Look look at what's actually underneath that. So don't just uh, look at the fruit which takes the form of sin or sexual sin. Actually look at the Uh, the damage and the emotional damage that precedes that, that actually that grows out of, the wound that grows out of. In the same way, uh, I was saying yesterday, don't just look at the emotional scenes, but actually look at the structure that brings you to that place of emotion. So with tears and laughter, these are fruits, okay? Tears and laughter are fruits, and you must remember this. They sit on top of ocean, they sit... They're, they're fruits of emotion. They're fruits of the emotion being experienced in your audience. And that emotion, if you make it pent up too long, explodes. Or it takes a strange form of explosion. And that explosion literally can take the form of an explosion. So for example, one of the things comedians know how to do is called killing the joke. Okay? You, may, you ever heard this expression? Probably not. but. It's called killing the joke. Okay? So if you're a stand-up comedian, one of the things you have to learn is that you want the audience to explode with laughter. Okay? So if you tell a great joke and they laugh, that laughter releases their emotion. Okay? It's partly laughter is a release. It's an enjoyment. It's, okay? So what you learn to do, if you're a comedian, is you learn to kill that laughter. You learn to actually tell a joke right on top of that joke without allowing, and the trick is not to allow the audience to laugh. And so by the time you tell the third joke on top of other, they just explode. They, they, they just laugh, and they laugh, and you, you know, it might take you a minute to get them back. But they love you. They haven't laughed so much. For years, you know. So you kill the joke, and, and 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 why you can do that is you actually understand emotion. You actually understand that laughter and so on sits on top of emotion. That, that it's a, a fruit of emotion. That it's uh, and what you're actually going after is, is the emotion itself. You're going after the controlling of that. So laughter is a response.